Welcome, Resonate family and any other friends tuning in. We are glad to have you here. This summer, we are starting a series that is called The Story of God. This 12-week series covers the timeless saga of God's redemptive love, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. What is God's greater story that is unfolding throughout all of history? Each week, we will explore these questions and get into the depth and breadth of God's covenant with His chosen people, humanity's response, and the hope to be found in His story. Our prayer as we go through this series is that God's redemptive movement throughout history would inspire us to greater devotion, to love God and our neighbors on campus and in Seattle. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right? All right. Summer in Seattle. It's undefeated, right? Nowhere better to be in Seattle right now. This is the place to be. We pay our dues all year long in the rain, in the cold, to be here right now. Your high rents you're paying, your high bills you're paying, right now is the days you get to re-get your money back, I guess. You get to experience the, the high cost of living here is today and this week. So it's good to be here with you guys this morning. We're in a, a sermon series this summer uh, called The Story of God. And so walking through a 12-part, you guys probably can't see this graphic, it's a terrible low-res graphic for some reason. Um, but it's a 12-part uh, series going through the entire book of the Bible, starting with creation all the way to Revelation. So last week, Sam kicked us off with part one, talking about creation. And creation, the part, you know, part one is great, it's glorious, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's God's power on display. It is Eden, it's perfection, right? And in part two, things already start to come off the rails. Uh, the story takes a turn for the worst. And we see the fall happening in Genesis chapter 3. So I get the privilege of taking part 2 and talking about the fall and sin and what it means for the story of God and the story of His people. So I want to start, though, today talking about something um, known in family psychology as uh, what's known as the oscillating family narrative. The oscillating family narrative. So psychologists have studied... Families and how families, when, they, when families tell their own family story to their kids, to even to themselves, what it does is it helps bind the family together and create a stronger bond. So, uh, you know, I think about, um, there's a quote, uh, an article in, in the New York Times called The Family Stories That Bind Us. And in this article, uh, this doctor psychologist named Marshall Duke uh, began to, to describe this process of what it means to tell the family, the oscillating family narrative. So he talks about, for example, sitting down your son one day and saying this, Dear son, let me tell you, we've had our ups and downs in our family. We built a family business. Your grandpa was a pillar of the community. Your mother was on the board of the hospital. But we also had our setbacks. You had a crazy uncle who was once arrested, perhaps thrown in prison. We had our house burned down. Your dad lost a job. But no matter what happened, we always stuck together as a family. So the, the oscillating family story is ups and downs, setbacks. We, we have triumphs. But this whole, the whole picture is that as, as through thick and thin, we stuck together. We're still here. We're moving forward. So the idea, uh, this, this psychologist says that when children, when kids have they, they have, they know their family story, it gives them more self-confidence, more identity, and more connectedness. And they have this strong intergenerational self. They know, kids know, 
they belong to something bigger than themselves. So the hope in this, this kind of sermon series is to do the same thing, is to tell the oscillating family story of the people of God. Plenty of ups and downs. You go read the Old Testament, mostly downs, mostly like valleys, lots of brokenness, so lots of, of crazy uncles who were getting in prison, right? Lots of, uh, of ups and downs all throughout the Bible, but especially in the Old Testament. So we're going to tell the family story over 12 weeks, again, going through each kind of major part of the story, helping all of us remember and know the story you're a part of. All of us here are part of a story much bigger than yourself, than our church here in Seattle, than the, the modern church in the 21st century. All of us share a much larger and longer story all the way back to the creation of the world. So we're going to walk through uh, today and the next 12 weeks, 11 weeks, um, this, this narrative. So um, we're going to start again today in Genesis chapter 2, um, kind of picking up where Sam left off last week. So brace yourself. It's about to be a lot of reading today. All right, going to read a lot of text. So follow along on your phones or on the TV as well. But starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we'll pick up the story um, there. So says this, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely or certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding or fitting to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding or fitting for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs while he slept. This is a crazy story, right? But God takes one of his ribs, closes the flesh at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And when the man woke up and sees Eve for the first time, he's like, poetry comes out of his mouth. He's like, okay, yes, finally. I've just been looking at and hanging out with animals, and now there's a woman next to me. And his first words are poetry. He says, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called a woman, for she is taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. All right, still good news, right? Great news, glorious, perfect great story so far, right? Enter conflict, enter sin in verse 1 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made and said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? Let's pause there for a second because this is pretty confusing or it's like what's actually happening here. So I took a, a seminary class this last uh, last year, Old Testament class, and the professor is walking through this verse, like, what's actually happening in this verse? There are several different translations or in interpretations of this verse. What's actually happening with the serpent, with the snake? There's really th about three uh, possible scenarios happening here. So the, po the first scenario is that 
The serpent is literally just a serpent. It's a talking snake. That's all it is. And a talking snake is talking to Eve. Scenario number two, or interpretation two, is that uh, the devil, Satan himself, enters into the snake somehow, embodies the snake, and is talking to Eve himself through a snake. Also a crazy situation. Uh, number three, though, would be uh, where the enemy like uses his power to you know, control the snake. He is controlling the snake to say his own words and causing uh, the, the serpent to deceive Eve. So my personal take is, is number three, where the enemy is, is causing the snake to do its bidding, to do its will. Um, but either way, you, you see the enemy already at work. So the enemy, Satan, has fallen from grace, fallen from heaven, and is now entering into the story of God, attempting on day two, basically, or I guess it's day, day eight or day nine, uh, depending on how you read the story, right? So not, not day two, but like it's very, very soon in the story, the enemy is already trying to mess with the perfect design God has made. So verse two, it says this, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but what about, but, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. The snake says, No, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God walking in the garden at the, at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam replies, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asked him, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate, blame shifting to his wife, right? So God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate, blame shifting to the serpent. But the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between you and your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify. This is, this is what's called the curse. This is what the, the consequence of sin. God pronounces this upon creation and upon people. So to the woman, he says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children now with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So before there was no pain, there was no evil, no sin. Now, when you give birth to children, it's going to be extremely painful and difficult for you. Your marriage relationship is going to be strained now. To the man, God says, because 
You listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you not to. The ground now is cursed because of you. You will eat from it from means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will, you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, a lot going on here. I could spend uh, hours and hours trying to unpack this for you, but we're going to try to hone in on what does Genesis 3, two things, what does Genesis 3 mean for the story of God? And what does Genesis 3 mean for us today as we follow Jesus? So what does Genesis 3 have to do with the grand story, the grand narrative of God? What, is this, what part does this play in the whole story? And secondly, how do we understand our place personally in this as well? So <clears throat> again, um, <clears throat> based on your interpretation of your, the, th- the three interpretations of the snake in Genesis 3 verse 1, you'll also begin to interpret the rest of Genesis 3. What is, is God cursing just physical snakes? Or is God pronouncing a curse upon um, the enemy, the devil, through the snake? That's my, my personal take. So when you see what we see happening in, uh, in, this, in the, kind of the, the pronouncement of what the consequence of sin looks like, God is both talking to creation, to the enemy, and to people as well. So... I want to walk through three takeaways that I think are important for us to to understand today from Genesis 3. The first one being this, that the enemy is more deceitful and sin is more destructive than we ever realize. This is on display in Genesis 3. It's the same thing you see happening all throughout the Old Testament. The story of God, this plays out over and over and over again. In your own personal life, the same thing is true. The enemy is always more deceitful than you realize. And sin's effects, sin's consequences are much more destructive than we realize. So Genesis 3, 1, you know, the enemy comes to Eve and says, did God really say that? He's, in other words, saying, is this really that big a deal? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? He's saying, what's the big deal? God is trying to control you. God's trying to hold out on you. So by telling you that, he's trying to control you. So it's not that really that big a deal. So if your eyes are, when you eat the fruit, you won't actually die. And in the end, this is kind of a half truth, right? Depending on how you read this, like they didn't physically die when they ate the fruit, right? But what did die was a spiritual intimacy with God. There was a separation that happened that the moment they ate the fruit, their eyes are open, they realize they're naked, they realize they've sinned, and that sin separates and alienates people from other people, from creation, from God himself. So certainly a death happens, just not the death they thought would happen. So the enemy is coming to them and and telling them a half-truth, a half-lie, half-truth thing. And this is what happens, I think, all throughout the story of God. The enemy comes to God's people with a half-truth, and it sounds like, oh, it sounds like not bad, right? This doesn't sound outright you know, rebellious against God. Not a bold-faced lie, but more of this subtle half-truth. And so, this deception, the problem with deception is you never realize you're being deceived, right? 
oh, you think oh, I'll just like understand and realize when I'm being dis-. No, no, no. the whole point is that deception, you never realize you're being led into a lie. That's the problem with deception. And I think it's the enemy's number one tactic to lure God's people away from God's best, God's design. Nearly every page of the Bible, you see um, people believing lies, have truths, if you will, the enemy feeds them. So I want to pause here and just ask the question, what subtle half-truth are you being deceived by right now? All of us perhaps are in danger of believing half-truths from the enemy, either from culture or even from church or your family or whatever. Like All of us are in danger of believing half-truths and making decisions based on those half-truths. So here are some examples of half-truths. God wants me to be happy. God does not want me to suffer. God hates suffering. Is that true? Kinda. Like, kinda true. Like, it depends. It's complicated, right? It's a complicated, yes, God desires us to be full of joy, to be, to be happy, to not, God hates suffering, right? So, if God wants me to be happy, therefore I should do what makes me happy. And what makes me happy is binging Netflix, right? Or, what makes me happy is self-expression, being true to myself. God wants me to be true to myself, to be authentic to myself, to be genuine to myself, and therefore, whatever I feel is myself or what makes me happy, I should go pursue that, right? Maybe, right? That's a, that's a half-truth, or it's like, it sounds like it might be true. It depends on how you're actually seeing that and how you're interpreting that against God's Word. So, Again, we, we hear this all the time. Whatever is you feel on the inside, you should express that or pursue that, whether it's your sexuality, it's your approach to dating relationships. Like if it feels right, you should probably pursue that. And if God's word contradicts that, well, it's just you know an Old Testament out of context verse that might not actually apply to me. And all of a sudden you start believing the half truth and going down that road. What about this one? God isn't that concerned with sin because in the end, His love wins. Grace wins. So in the end, God's grace covers sin, right? That sounds pretty good, right? But sometimes that can be a license to sin, a license to be casual with sinful, broken habits that in the end, yes, it's true, God's love wins, God's grace wins, but how you choose to live that have truth out can have disastrous consequences, right? So all these half-truths can dupe us or deceive us into making awful decisions that bring us ultimately away from God and towards our own selves, thinking we know better than God. So people will date and marry people for the wrong reasons. People will chase after materialistic, entertainment-driven lifestyles that let again can look like it's just simply enjoying God's gifts, but in the end, it's it's feeding a materialistic soul, and it leaves you hollow on the inside and bored with God. It it brings you away from God. Maybe it's maintaining an online pornography habit because it's just a little bit too hard and too legalistic to quit it cold turkey. You know what's the big deal? Everyone has this. Everyone kind of deals with this at some level. So I'm just gonna let this continue in my life and not kill it for good. 
all of us can tend to have certain have-truths that sneak into us, and we have to be vigilant to fight them off. So for me, a personal example of this, I thought about a few years ago, um, um, one day, you know, sitting there and um, thinking to myself, you know what, I, I, uh, I'm a pastor, I'm in ministry, I, I'm living on pennies, um, this is a long time ago, um, but, but I'm raising support, my own salary, and I think God would be cool, God's cool if like, I don't tithe as much, or like, don't tithe at all. Like, my tithe could be like, considered just my job itself. It's my sacrifice, I'm giving to God, is the fact that I'm doing this job. And, and I think God might be cool if I don't tithe as much. It was the lie that began to kind of like seep into my heart. Like, yeah, you know what? My life's kind of hard and I, my sacrifice is, is high. And I have given up a career in engineering. I've given up, you know, all these aspirations. And God's cool with me, I think. He's cool with me. If I like keep some money back for myself a little bit. It's kind of our side deal. It was a thought that began to enter into my brain. And I realized after that, that was a half-truth. Like, yes, I'm giving my life, I'm sacrificing for God, but man, do not think for a second that God's cool with like a little bit of half-truth, half-lie, selfish gain in my heart, right? And again, all of us have something that we're like, you know what, this might not be that big a deal. It might not even be that sinful, maybe. But in that space, I think the enemy loves to enter into the gray area, or perhaps not gray at all. It's just a flat out like deceptive thought and say, you know what? You've worked hard for this. You deserve this. It's retirement, right? You guys have parents or friends who have retired. Like I have worked my whole life for this. I've earned this money. Now I can blow it on whatever I want to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You have worked hard for that. You've been wise with your money. You've been, you've worked hard, but like, what if like that isn't the full picture? And what if the enemy is trying to get into your heart and deceive you away from God. You guys know, and plenty of pastors, ministers have committed, I mean, awful major moral failures because they, they told themselves long enough, I'm doing the Lord's work. And he's cool with a little bit of a side deal on sin. He's cool with a little bit of sexual like deviancy here. And what that ends up, destroying their life, their marriage, their church, right? This is a major foul. So this strategy is what Satan uses all the time to deceive God's people slowly, subtly, until at some point it destroys your life. So watch out for subtle deception. This is what the, the enemy uses when Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and fasts and is tempted by the enemy. The enemy comes to him and tries to tell him he quotes scripture to Jesus, like God's word, but taking out of context and taking broken up and quoted, misquoted as a half-truth. And Jesus sees right through it, knows what the devil is doing, hears it and quotes scripture back to him in full context and knows, no, God's word and God's will is what I'm after and I will not bend to the half-truths of deception you're throwing at me. Jesus wins and shows us what it looks like to, he models to us the way we should do this. But we need help in this. Obviously, we are not Jesus, so we need the Holy Spirit, his power to illuminate the lies and to follow Jesus in truth. So, number one, don't 
underestimate the power of the enemy's deception and the destructive power of sin. Number two, though, is that deviating from God's design always fails to deliver. We think we know better than God. We always, we all of us do. At some point, we go a different direction. And whenever we go a different direction, it always fails to deliver what we actually want and need. Adam and Eve wanted knowledge and wisdom. And in the end, what they got was a different kind of knowledge and wisdom. A different kind, a lower knowledge and wisdom. What they got instead was not God's best, but it was a broken version of what God's best is. So every time we go against God's design, it fails to deliver what we most need and most want. So this is cheesy, but like it never pays to go against God's ways. Never pays to go against God's ways. God's laid out a design for Adam and Eve. They chose not to embrace it, and their rebellion against God did not bring the better way they thought it would, but only brought brokenness. So again, God's laid out a design for our relationship to our bodies, our sexuality, for marriage, And so you see what's happening in the culture right now is the licentiousness of our culture has brought only the openness and the the pursuing of all that has only brought, I would say, more brokenness, confusion, addiction, and more divorce. So I would say what the world is feeding us when it comes to sexuality and relationships is not working. But God's design is timeless, it's flawless. To pursue God's way is the best way and brings human flourishing. Our relationship to money, God's laid out a a design for how to treat our money, how to give to God generously, how to break the power of greed. So again, in the world you see, if you go against God's design, you see greed, you see fraud, you see debt, you see dishonesty and taxes. So if you go against God's design, for taxes, you'll pay the price, right? You will, if you don't pay to Caesar what Caesar's, you will pay the price in prison. Uh, just, a, just a quick, quick piece of advice for you guys. Uh, but pay your taxes uh, is a very real threat to deviating from God's design. But also the, the idea of giving to God's what's God's is to worship him through tithing. I told my story with that, but all of us are called to worship God through giving. That's not to simply control you or control us. It's to, be, to break the power of greed, to not give in to the enemy's deception. God's given us a design for our relationship to alcohol, drunkenness, and substances, to not have a body controlled by substances. And I don't have to remind you of the dangers of what happens when you don't go, do things God's way when it comes to alcohol and drugs, right? Very obvious, right? Our relationship to even leadership, I would say. God's given us a design for leadership, a servant leadership profile pictured in Jesus. And so when you go against that servant leadership profile, what you have is the opposite. You have abuse of power, manipulation. Even in the church, you see this happening, right? So God has given us a perfect design. And whenever we deviate from that design, it fails to deliver human flourishing. And we see this happening all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. God's people think, you know what? What if this time we do it differently? We don't follow God's teachings. And so you go read about the judges and kings and the Old Testament prophets. Like, guys, I'm telling you, just it's really simple. Do what God says, you will prosper. If you don't do what God says, you'll suffer. It's that simple. And they're like, yeah, maybe. And it's like, God's like, I'll show you. I will show you. This is so simple. Like, 
Go after foreign gods. I will bring pestilence and my wrath and war. If you obey me and worship me, do not set up false gods. I'm going to prosper you. And God prospers the nation, right? So all throughout the story of God, God warns his people to follow him, obey him, love him, stay close to him. If you do so, your life will flourish. If you do not, it's really simple. Your life will begin to fall apart and break. It's that simple. So we're called to embrace God's design at all costs. Last one, number three, is this. Even when evil is at hand, God is at work. Genesis 3 shows us that even when evil is at hand, God is at work. I love this in chapter 3. When God is pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, he actually sneaks in a messianic promise as well with the curse. So go back and look at verse 15. Um, Let's see. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now again, my professor said, his actual, his personal take was that this verse is talking about literally hostility between men and snakes, and that's it. I'm like, I'm not sure I see it the same way, dog. I see it a little bit differently. I see it, I personally am taking a little bit different take here, and I would say this is the first, this is the, this is what is called, other, other scholars call this the proto-evangelion. So it's the first announcement of the gospel is in this verse. So when it says, he will strike your head, that's a nod to a future hero, a future Messiah who will come strike your head, crush your head. You'll strike his heel, bruise his heel. There'll be hostility between you and him, his people. So it's not just about the offspring like Eve's sons getting in fights with snakes out in the field, like getting bitten and stomping on head snakes, but like there's a deeper metaphor and symbolism there in that from the offspring of Eve will come a hero, a snake crusher, who will strike the head of the serpent, the great serpent, inflicting a mortal blow on him and will be victorious. And from that one man comes hope for all people. So just when you think the storyline has already been lost, Genesis 3, you're like, man, things are going great. All of a sudden, take a turn for the worst. Man, what just happened? Sin just broke everything, right? Just when you think the storyline's already been lost, God is already busy writing the next chapter. Just as sin is introduced into the narrative, God introduces a solution for sin. Just as the villain makes his first move, the hero is guaranteed final victory. Hostility is introduced, the villain makes his first move, but the hero is already guaranteed a final victory. So from Eve would come one who would crush the serpent, one who would provide a covering of sin, a true covering for sin, one who would remove hostility and condemnation from sinners once and for all, one who would bring healing to a fallen world. It's Jesus, right? Jesus comes as the one who crushes the enemy, who will one day bring healing to all the world, to bring the heavens and the earth back together, to remove the hostility between us and God, to bring a remedy 
necessary for every alienation, every affliction. Jesus is the hope of Genesis 3. He's the hope throughout all the story of God, the story of the Bible, and He is the hope of the future of the world as well. Colossians 3, Colossians 2, I think, actually says, all things hold together in Him. Jesus is the hope of Genesis, the hope of our story, and the story of humanity. So today, again, if you are tempted to despair, tempted to believe the world is beyond saving or healing, or that relationship you have is beyond healing or saving, or whatever you're going through, even at the darkest hour, even when evil feels heavy and sin feels like it cannot be overcome, God is at work. So when suffering comes, when temptation comes, when darkness comes, remember that God is also at work. Don't lose sight and don't lose hope in the work accomplished by Jesus already once and for all, but the ongoing work of the Spirit through Him. So this morning, we're going to sing and respond to this Jesus who's given us hope, given us a reason to sing. So let's, let's pray. God, today we, uh, we come to You and thank You for the fact that even when evil is at hand, you were at work. Even when the enemy attempts to, to break your design, God, you are already redeeming, you are already moving. God, I pray that today Genesis 3 would remind us of how weak we are without you, that we are easily deceived, we are easily led astray, but God, your power and your spirit holds us fast, it protects us and leads us, God. Today, God, give us hearts that are sensitive to your spirit, that would see and would have our eyes opened to have truth we're believing right now. God, remind us right now, reveal to us right now a half-truth or a half-lie that we are currently believing or on the way to believing and God, show us how much that will destroy us. Show us what it means to, to be people of conviction and repentance, to, to turn from that and to turn towards you and believe that doing things your way is always better. It never pays to go against your way, God. So make us a people of obedience. Make us a people in a church of a joyful obedience to Jesus. And this summer, God, would it be marked by lives that are changed and lives that are rooting out sin and experiencing more of your flourishing and your, your goodness, God. We love you and praise the song in Christ's name.